Welcome to Say What Needs Saying. I'm Zach. And I'm Brandon. And today we're here with Derek Van Ness. Derek is a wealth strategist with Big Life Financial. Derek, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Really excited to be talking with you guys and say whatever needs to be said here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So I, I'll be honest, before uh, getting in touch with you, I frankly didn't know what a wealth strategist was. So could you maybe give the listeners a bit of background? What do you do? What is a wealth strategist? And you know, what, what does your job entail? Yeah, and that, that's a great place to start because I use the term wealth strategist because there are financial planners and CPAs and other things, and, and those aren't exactly what I do. So we, we definitely wanted to draw a distinction. A wealth strategist isn't a particular designation, like I didn't get, a, get certified for that in, in one way or another. Uh, I do hold some licenses and different things, but it's not uh, not a specific designation. So in the simplest terms, what I do is I help people keep more of the money that they make and be smarter with it. And the, the keep more of the money that you make might be minimizing fees, paying less taxes, being smarter with cash flow, uh, or you know we even help sometimes clients. We have a cash back credit card processing program. Like if people are running a ton of credit cards and they they want to get cash back on some of that. Or some of those fees back. There's a program for that. And then on the be smarter with your uh, with your money. We teach strategies outside of Wall Street. Uh, I personally think, and part of what I'm sure we'll get into today, that that a lot of the Wall Street uh, product strategies approach is broken. And I feel like it's not doing a lot of people a service. So we have alternatives to that. I wouldn't even call them alternative. I would call them mainstream, makes sense kinds of approaches, but they are outside of the uh, the big Wall Street firm type of approach. So that's mainly what we do, help people save money on taxes, get tax incentives and rebates back from the government. There's a ton of that out there that people are totally unaware of, and then help them be smarter with their money uh, and tax efficient with their investments. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense, right? And there's a lot of people that are very, very bad with money. I've said numerous <laughs> times now, I, I can't even keep track of how many times I've said whether it was on our Discord server or uh, social media or on the podcast itself, that I feel passionately about the education system. And if I were in charge of it and uprooting it from and starting from scratch, finance would be one of the new core subjects, in my opinion. I just feel like, you know, people don't know what they're doing when they're when it comes to money. They don't understand a lot about it. And frankly, neither do I much. But I think that it is an important topic and it's something that does need saying and does need discussing more for sure. Yeah, I find it really interesting that, in my opinion, probably the three biggest things that impact your life are your health, your relationships and your money. And how much time do we dedicate to those in school right now? Right. Not very much unless it's your specialty, right? I don't know if that's on purpose or by accident, but I find it to be very interesting that that those three subjects are so lightly covered, uh, whereas others are emphasized a lot more heavily. And, you know, math and reading and stuff like that, obviously, are super, super important. But I feel like your ability to manage your finances, your ability to take care of your health, especially in today's world, and your relationships, if you have bad relationships, Honestly, everything else doesn't matter. So, yeah. Well, I agree. Um, and especially with 2020, if you don't mind, we pretty much jumping into the topics because you spoke upon people managing their money. Like 2020 really either hurt 
or helped. You know, a lot. Of, I feel I always feel bad for the restaurant businesses who weren't able to continue, like family businesses that you know were around for a hundred or for over a hundred years and now are you know won't reopen again. But then you also see people with uh, the PPP loans and certain whether it be a football star who have to owe money back to the, the government for irresponsibly using it or people not getting a check. For me, example, I was supposed to get a stimulus check and I spent money anticipating said check. Um, and that was that was ever number one. But speaking, uh, I guess in the same realm, what would you say would be you know, the biggest financial mistake you see people making across generations? So whether it be the boomers all the way up to you know, I guess the millennials and then Gen Z. Yeah. So this is not going to be sexy, but just take my word for it that this is super super important. There's mm-hmm. there's one thing that literally separates people who become wealthy from those who don't. And this is it sounds crazy to make it that simple, but it comes down to this. People who become wealthy have systematized saving money and people who don't systematize saving money, they never get there. Right. So so think about exercise or people who are in really good shape. Have you ever seen someone who's super fit and strong who didn't like work out regularly? Do you think those people just work out when they feel like it? No, No, they have a routine. They have a system. And so money's the same way. People who save money, even if you don't make a ton, like I think the best investment you can make is in yourself and your skill set, your ability to earn money. Nothing will ever give you an ROI like that ever. But when you make the money, if you just if you don't save it, if you just spend everything you make, it doesn't matter how much you make. You never get ahead or you never build wealth. You're always living paycheck to paycheck. Conversely, even if you don't make a ton of money, but you consistently save 10 to 20 percent of what you make. Over time, that will add up. Now, there's more to do than just save it into a savings account. But if you don't start saving somewhere, you'll never get there. And listen, I don't love 401ks. I don't love IRAs for my clients, right, which are business owners, because business owners can invest in their business. And they have so many other different opportunities that I don't think those are the best places for them to put money. But there's no question that there are a ton of Americans who are dead broke and have a half a million dollars in an IRA because the system is automatically saving for them. That's how powerful it is. They're terrible with money, but because they systematize savings, they have all this money put away. The biggest mistake I see people making is they say, I just want to invest. I just need to get together a bunch of money and they never save. They never save and they don't have systems. So they never get over that hump to having enough money working for them that it actually makes a difference. That's the biggest mistake. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, right? I, I love the analogy to working out because it's it's incredibly true. Over the years, had periods where I'm very strict and have a set schedule of working out and mm-hmm. I stick to it and then I get good results, right? And then you slack and you slip back and you gain the weight back and, you know, whatever. And if you lose, the second you lose that schedule, that regime, then all of a sudden your results are lost. But not just that, it's it's that much harder to get back into it. And so money I found is kind of the same way. Personally, mm-hmm. I know with COVID, I was working the whole time, but working remotely for part of it. And so during that time, I was hoping to work on my finances a little bit. I felt mm-hmm. a little bit like my inner 55-year-old came out because my my boss asked me what I was doing to kill some time. I told him, oh, I started a Roth IRA. And he kind of laughed at me. <laughs> but, you know, it's some, <laughs> yeah. it's just the the act of getting started and, and like you said, systematizing it. Uh, I couldn't agree more. 
let's jump into a little bit. You mentioned small business owners. So Say What Needs Saying covers various different topics. We cover politics, we cover religion, culture, all sorts of things. And, you know, it's because these topics are taboo in a lot of cases. They're they're off limits or perceived to be off limit. And mm-hmm. one of the other big ones is money. People don't talk about their salary. People don't talk about, you know, wages and raises and how much, you know, whatever cost and all of mm-hmm. that. So one of the things going forward into season two of Say What Needs Saying is we plan to do a series where we bring on small business owners and we'll talk to them a little bit about their business and what they do and and so on and so forth. And so I think this would be, you know, a great resource for them to to hear what actually they could do and what kind of investments you're talking about and how best to manage their money. So, you know, if you were to name a, a couple top ideas for what these small business owners can do with their money, you know, to invest it back into themselves and their business, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, dumping it into the stock market or something similar, you know, are there a couple specific things that come to mind for you? Well, certainly reinvesting in the business is great, right? Investing in your skill set and knowledge, especially if you're a, a really small business where it's one, two, three people, like you are probably right. the breadwinner for the business and you've got some support people. Your skill set is going to really dictate your ability to earn. As your business grows, investing in systems and people is super, super important. Once again, systematizing things is, I believe, is so, so important. And having employees uh, that are good employees and taking good care of them, investing in them. Mm-hmm. Because listen, the asset in anything is the human beings, right? The assets, when you invest in the stock market, what you're really investing in is companies who employ people and those people do the work. If you invest in a rental property, the house doesn't write the check, the person writes the check. And in your own business, You don't just invest in a warm body, you invest in a human being. And when you invest in those people, you get the most out of them, right? Because they know that you care. And people do things for three different reasons. They do things out of fear, right? Like I'm going to get fired. I don't want to get fired. I'm scared of my boss or losing my job or not having enough money. And when people operate out of fear, they do the minimum that they can get away with, right? They do enough to not get fired. People also do things out of duty. My boss pays me a certain amount. And I want to give them an honest day's work, right? I want to make sure that if they pay me X amount of dollars, that I'm giving them that much effort, that much value so that I can justify and feel good about the fact that I came to work today and my boss paid me for it. And then the third reason that people do things is they do things out of love. And when people do things out of love, it's not about a fair exchange. It's about giving as much as they can. It's about going as far as they can. It's about going the extra mile, taking accountability, responsibility. When you invest in people, they go from fear or duty to love. They do things because you matter to them. The business matters to them. What you're up to with the business matters to them. They feel better. You feel better. Everybody does better, but it takes investing in them. And some of that is money and some of that is time and some of that is attention and and caring and all, all of those types of things. But investing in your systems and people is super, super huge. Now, if people are talking about like, how do I accumulate wealth outside my business, right? Like, where should I be putting my money? Because the two biggest questions I get are, how do I pay less taxes? Because taxes, especially when you start making good money, are so darn expensive. Do you realize if you live in like California and you uh, make over $400,000, you're probably paying 47% of what you make to Uncle Sam? Dude, it's nuts. It is nuts. (laughs) That's why Joe Rogan's no longer there. Right. (laughs) 
That's why a lot of people are no longer yeah. there. Yeah, a lot of people left. I guess Oregon is about to pass, and I'm not knowledgeable on the specifics, but I guess they're about to pass a state income tax law that will make them the highest income state, oh, wow. income tax state. So yeah, it's it's pretty heavy duty. But here's here's the reality, and people don't know this. There's a ton of strategies you can use, mm-hmm. especially when you get into those high tax brackets to bring your t- yourself down. I mean, you know, you're probably going to have to pay 20, 24% somewhere in that neighborhood. But once you start getting into those 30s and 40 percent, there's a lot of things you can do to really mitigate that. People don't know that. Like they try and write all this stuff off in their business, but there are actually tax advantaged investments and other types of places you can put money. Uh, there's things where you can put money in and then donate them back. We teach people how to do that with art where they can buy art, hold it for a couple of years, and then they can mm-hmm. donate some of that to museums and nonprofits and they can get big, big tax write-offs on that and some other really cool strategies that people are just, just totally unaware of. Right. Right. And so, so that's definitely a big thing for, for business owners is being tax efficient. But uh, as far as growing their money, we love something called uh, the money maximization model. It's mm-hmm. a version of what's known as the infinite banking system, but it's a way to use a specific type of life insurance to save your money into. Now, a lot of people don't know this about life insurance, but if you do it right, you can save cash in there and it gets a really nice rate of return. Huh. Most people think of life insurance like when I die, it pays. That's right. all they really know. Yeah. And if you even buy the right policy, but you don't set it up properly, you don't set it up for cash growth. If you set it up for a death benefit, it still isn't very efficient for growing money. But if you set them up right, you can store your cash in there. Yeah, you still have to pay for some insurance, but the upside is your money grows in there at a nice guaranteed rate of return plus a dividend. And if you do it right, you won't ever pay tax on that growth. So it can be like a supercharged Roth account that always goes up. So what's really cool about that for business owners is they're totally liquid. So you don't have to think, well, am I going to grow my money or am I going to have access to it for my business? You can do both. You can grow your money. And then when you need it for your business, whether COVID comes along and you need it for an emergency or a big opportunity comes along, the guy down the street who's your competitor is retiring. And because you have cash on hand, you can buy their business at pennies on the dollar or other opportunities come along in life uh, to buy the piece of real estate or the house that you want or whatever. If you have cash available, there's a real value to that. And you can do things that other people can't do because you're liquid. And so this, this system really teach, allows people to grow money while it's sitting in their account uh, and earn a nice rate of return while having access to it. And then we eventually teach them how to turn that into their own banking system so that as they buy cars, houses, equipment, investment properties, these kinds of things, instead of you paying interest on everything you buy, you collect it. And that's a little too complicated to get into today. But um, for most business owners, them having access to their cash while it grows is just far superior, in my opinion, to putting it somewhere where it gets locked up. You know, that makes perfect sense, right? The liquidity of it is the main portion that I think I want to echo. You know, like I said, I did set up a Roth IRA and I'm glad I did. And I did it before starting the podcast. Um, And I, I think it is better than nothing. But that said, it isn't liquid. I can't touch that unless I want to buy a house or I want to retire. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, the liquidity of it is definitely the key there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and like in that world, the other big thing here is, you know, locking it up, but also a lot of these people are deferring taxes, right? So they're putting money like your Roth is much better because you put, you pay the taxes, right. you put the money in and then you don't pay taxes, whatever it turns into, right? 
Mm-hmm. That's super awesome. The problem with the Roth is you can't put that much money in there. Mm, right. You can only, only, you know, and, and once you make a certain amount of money, you can't put money in there. So there's just a lot of limitations that you can't play like a big game with the Roth. There are some ways to, and I'm not an investment advisor. I don't do this work. I have a guy who does it. So, you know, double check with your professional, make <laughs> sure it's right for you. But, uh, Long story short, you can put money into an IRA and then you can backdoor it into a Roth and you can get more money in there. You'll still pay the taxes, but basically you can get more money in there. So that can be cool. But the main problem with these IRAs and 401ks, in my opinion, other than locking up your money is you're sort of kicking the tax can down the road. You know, you guys both sound like you're pretty young. Mm -hmm. And so my guess is you're going to be making more money later in your life than you are right now. right? Right. So paying taxes now versus sometime in the future is probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems cool that, hey, I put a dollar into, or I have a dollar and it goes into my IRA and a dollar shows up is really cool versus having to you know, pay 25% of that to Uncle Sam and only having 75 cents in there. But the thing is you're paying the taxes either way. Mm-hmm. People think by putting money into a Roth or an IRA that they're saving taxes and they're not. They're just deferring them. Now, what needs to be said about this is If you ask any financial professional, nearly everybody I know is in consensus on the idea that taxes are going to be higher in the future than they are now. We're in a low tax bracket, historically very low tax brackets. And I don't know if you guys heard about this, but you know, we had a couple stimuluses this year, $5 trillion, which added about 20% to our national debt. We were already struggling to service that debt. That money's got to get paid for. Those were not free, free checks. Just so you know, it was a loan. Mm-hmm. So you're paying it back in your taxes. It's got to get paid for. So chances are real good between that, figuring out social security, healthcare, whatever other things need to be figured out. Chances are real good taxes are going to be higher in the future. So why would you want to lock up your money, not get access to it uh, without a penalty, and then pay more taxes potentially in the future? That to me doesn't make any sense at all. You know, if people want to invest in the market, that's great. I'm I'm a believer that if you want to invest in the market, you should probably invest in your education first. Or if you want to invest in real estate, which I love, but it's not for everybody, but get educated first. Like your first investment should be in getting educated on how to properly invest. I know that sounds silly. And the only people who say it are the people who sell, you know, investing (laughs) education. Yeah. But but the truth is going down to your neighbor, your your neighbor, kid, brother-in-law, uncle, whoever sells mutual funds or, you know, of the index funds or that kind of thing. Like they don't even know what they're, they're doing most of the time. They're just like, yeah, I've been told that if you just put money in here, the market will go up or down. And over time, it'll always go up and that's going to work. And it sort of does. And it does go up over time just because of inflation and you keep putting money in there and the market does get a return over time. But what's the cost of not having access to that? What's the cost of you retire and the market crashes right after that? Now you're kind of have to live on that money and it cripples your ability to, to retire properly. There's just a lot of risk there that people are unaware of. So I think if they want to do anything, even if you want to do life insurance, which I think is super safe, you need to be educated. If you want to do real estate, which I think is a great vehicle, be educated. If you want to trade Bitcoin, get educated. It's so, so, so important. And nobody's saying it because the financial professionals want to keep you in the dark. They want to mushroom manage you, right? Keep you in the dark and feed you a bunch of crap. Yeah. That you need them and that they're too, they're way smarter than you and they have way more information than you. And that's true if you don't have your own education. But I think generally speaking, nobody cares about your money like you do. And you can probably do a pretty darn good job if you spend a little time in education. 
and make sure it aligns with your goals. There's just so much advantage to that. Yeah, it's a little more work. You got to pay attention. But guess what? Almost everything in life that you want a good result from, you got to pay attention. You got to put the time in. Like it doesn't really happen any other way. So rant closed. I mean, I think I would, at least Zach and I both can attest to it. Like the work we had to put in in our undergraduate clearly led us to uh, the careers we're on the path now. Zach is in his PhD. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm a surgical neurophysiologist. That work has to be done. And it did start from the root of education. But speaking, at least using that as a conduit, you know, I I hear at least within, as 2021 started, uh, a lot of people saw the market, uh, at least uh, individuals who like invest in the market do options and stuff like that. And I'm trying to gather information and mm-hmm. we're even thinking of doing a small segment where we're just informing, literally educating people on the basics of stock market and the basics of mm-hmm. just financial education leading to financial freedom. And that's such a word, at least uh, <laughs> within my world. And at least heard it through, you know, the, the artists that I've listened to, like don't spend your money on shoes, try to search, uh, search for financial freedom and stuff like that. What What is, okay, I guess I'll ask you, what is financial freedom? What is the concept of it, I guess, to the average person? And what's the first step in achieving that I, besides education? So there, there's a couple parts to that. Financial freedom, depending on who you ask, means different things. So one version of financial freedom, if like you're a Robert Kiyosaki follower, you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or any of his books is, he says when your passive income equals your expenses, you're financially free, right? Like if you don't go to work today, you've got assets that create enough money that you can pay your bills. He calls that being financially free. Another very good friend of mine, Garrett Gunderson, talks about financial freedom being the point in your life where money isn't the primary reason that you do or don't do things. So money's a factor, doesn't mean everything's taken care of, but you you make decisions where money's the factor, but it's not the only factor, it's not the primary factor, right? So you're living a life of free will and you have to, of course, live pros and cons. But one of the things you said there, Brandon, that I think is really important is, you know, don't buy the nice shoes, do something else with that money, we have to be really careful. We want to expand our way to wealth. We can't shrink our way to greatness, right? You huh. have to expand your way. And the way you do it is increasing your means to earn as opposed to shrinking your budget. Now, that doesn't mean go crazy, right? What it really means is live within your means, but continually do the things that will expand your means. Get smarter, get better, build better relationships, learn new skills, invest money in things that go up in assets. As you do that, you will expand your means. So you you do need to live within your means, within your budget. But that doesn't mean that you want to be the rich miser. Nobody wants to be Ebenezer Scrooge. Right? Everybody hates you. Who's the guy trying to get out of the d- bill at dinner? You never had any great experiences. You never bought the car you wanted or the house you wanted or the shoes you wanted or that suit that makes you feel like a million bucks because you're like, ah, that $1,000 compounded over the next 35 years. This is a $35,000 suit, right? Like you have to be smarter than that. And so I believe that there's a balance there of financial freedom is getting to the point where money's in my mind is not the primary factor because it usually is a factor unless you just have screw you money. But beyond that, financial freedom is you feeling empowered to do the things you want to do in your life. And for me, that's what it's always been about. It's not about more money. It's about living the life that I want to live because there are plenty of people who make a lot more money than me but I would put my life and the experiences I've had up against almost anybody. I've lived all over the country. I've lived all over the world in most of the best cities, been to most of the really cool concerts and 
venues and had tons of adventures and all of that stuff, not because I made more money than everyone, but because I was smart with my money and I did the, and I spent it on the things that I wanted to. And I prioritized what was important to me to get out of life. And you don't, I mean, honestly, depending on your situation, how you want to live, if you make 150,000 bucks a year, you can do a lot of really cool stuff. If you're just reasonable with your money, you can do a lot of the really amazing impact things. Maybe you don't have the biggest house in the world, but you can do a ton of really cool adventures or travel, or you can buy really nice clothes or, or whatever without getting crazy. You just prioritize the things that are most important to you. That's where you spend your money and you cut corners on the things that don't matter so much to you. And that that's something that uh, Ramit Sethi says in his book, uh, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And I really love that. Spend your money on the things that matter to you and the stuff that's not so important. You can, you can cut the corners and go bare bones on those. And I think that helps build a life you want. But ultimately, in my opinion, it's about expanding your means, get better, get smarter, invest in yourself, because ultimately that builds the life that you want to live. So what you're saying is the idea of financial freedom is not directly the way out. It's the management of your interests. I'm saying it's a mindset because there are people who have so much passive income that they never need to work a day in their life, but all they're consumed with is more money and how do I not pay taxes? And they're in prison. And there are Mm -hmm. other people who barely make enough to get by, but they live a life they love and they're totally free. Mm -hmm. It really is a mindset. And obviously for most people, that includes some degree of responsibility. We're not all just going to be like van life in it, but for some people that works. And so I think it is a mindset more than a, a tangible number. But if I had to say what that looks like for a lot of people, it is the freedom to have passive income that exceeds your expenses so that you don't have to worry. You're not at that point ever forced to do anything you don't want to financially. Yeah, I would 100% agree. Because I mean, presumably, as long as you're not retiring, you are still working, you are still making money. And so, so yeah, I I think that, you know, I said earlier that I started investing Mm -hmm. in things during the COVID pandemic. I also bought an 84 Corvette during the during the pandemic, because I had some I had built up some savings. And I saw it, I wanted to learn stick, I've always wanted a Corvette, and I bought it. And, you know, it's one of those things that it hurt a little looking at the at my at my account afterwards after buying it. But I I know that it was worth it because, you know, it was important to me. It was something that has value outside of just now. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't have that many miles. It's, I can I see it as an investment, too. I'm sure I could flip it if I really wanted to. But I think it's important to not just like you said, you don't want to be Scrooge McDuck. You, you don't want to you know, hold on to everything and, and everything, because then you're not free, you're not free, and you never will be at that rate. The the one there was one thing that I wanted to ask you about, the, there's this idea with millennials, especially, well, I don't want to say especially, but I feel that way, because I'm a millennial. And I'm sure that sentiment holds true for Gen Z, and maybe even up to Gen X a little bit too. Mm-hmm. is this lack of faith in capitalism this lack of faith in investing this mm-hmm. you know this lack of motivation to even do it what would be your your take on this or your advice to someone who just doesn't have faith or hope in the system itself 
and thinks that it's, you know, the haves and the have nots, right? It's the millionaires who bought a couple Bitcoin at its inception, or it's the Warren Buffetts and the, you know, the major investors, and then everyone else who has no chance of really gaining that wealth, really increasing that through investment or through savings or whatever, you know, this idea that you have to be the super rich guy to be the relatively well-off wealthy guy. So that's that's very interesting. And I would say that the, the the perception is, I think it's a little bit skewed, right? I mean, you do have the super extremes. You have the Jeff Bezos and the Koch brothers and the right. and the Bill Gateses and, and those people in the world. But there's a lot of people who do regular, you know, have regular jobs or have little small businesses and do really well. They live in a nice house and drive a nice car and they have fun and, and everything. And, and for what it's worth, there have been studies done on the correlation between money and happiness. Mm-hmm. And once you get past sort of the survival mark, so let's call that $80,000 a year of household income or whatever, right? Where you can, you can afford a little house and you can have a car and, and whatever and do your thing. There's no correlation between happiness and money after you get past that point. Really? So, so the wealthy people aren't necessarily happier. Now it yeah. looks cool to have the big house or the fancy car, all the other things, but those, those come with their own problems, their own setbacks, right? You have a lot of in, inauthentic. So, so I've been a millionaire and I've been dead broke. And I can tell you that they both have their pros and their cons. I would rather be rich than poor because the stress of not having two nickels to rub together is really hard. But when you're in that middle ground of, you know, I make $100,000 a year, $150,000 a year. So I make a good living and I don't have to watch every nickel and dime and I can go to dinner and I can mostly buy the clothes that I want. I have a reasonable car. I'm not embarrassed about things and where I live. Um, And I can go out and have fun with my friends. Like if you're at that level, you're doing really good. You're totally fine. And I'm not saying you shouldn't want more or can't want more than that. I just want you to get the, you know, sort of the all that glitters is not gold. Right. Because honestly, as you start to make a lot more money, it does come with its fair fair share of problems. So as far as capitalism and being disenchanted with that, capitalism, so I've heard it said this way, and I think it's the best way to say it. Capitalism is the worst setup that we haven't found something better than. In other words, capitalism is flawed and it has all kinds of issues, but we haven't found something better. If we found something better, we'd be doing it. And so there, there, there are pushes for some hybrid of, you know, universal basic income or, or a little bit of redistribution of this wealth, but truly greater taxation doesn't get us there any better because greater taxation means as you make more money, you just get to keep less of it. So the people who are already wealthy, like it's hard to catch up with them, right? They already have so much wealth that they didn't have to pay these taxes on. So that doesn't, doesn't really work. And what I find is really interesting, so I know you guys dive into politics, but as we look at things like socialism on one end, where theoretically in socialism, everybody does their thing and all the money goes to the government and the government divvies it out to everybody, we theoretically have a, a more equal society. But the problem is all the money runs through the hands of a few people, right? The government. And if you're a government person and all the money comes to you and you have access to trillions of dollars a year because the whole economy is running through your department, do you really want to go back to being the common person? So that's why if you look at socialism, and like a lot of people don't like the comparison of socialism and communism, and the main difference is one is through through a little bit more peaceful reform of laws and the other is more through military might, right? But they, they kind of stand for the same thing. But all that money is running through the hands of a few. 
and those people become very corrupt because they don't want to go back to being the peasants, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so that's been proven to not work. And in every instance, socialism has turned into totalitarianism. One person in charge kind of running the whole show. And then on the extreme other side, we have these capitalists, these people who have this power, the extreme of where our country may or may not be headed, who have sort of their own authoritarian power. And, and you know, you have the, the Facebooks and the Googles of the world who kind of control everything. And so the majority of the money runs through the hands of the few again. I think the main difference is in one, the money's running the, through the hands of the few who have earned it in some way. Most of the people, like if you look at Facebook, the reason that Zuckerberg is so wealthy is not because he swindled a bunch of people. He created tremendous value and a ton, a way for a ton of people to connect. The guys at Google organized the internet in the way that you can find anything you want in moments. And whether you agree with them or disagree with them, at least the people who are at the top within capitalism, most of them haven't done it through corruption. They've done it through, especially first generation people, they've done it through creating something valuable. Whether you like Jeff Bezos or, or Sam Walton or not, Walmart and Amazon, they changed the world, right? They changed the way that people can get goods and services super cheap. People don't realize it, but we've been in a very inflationary time for a while, but the technology and the Amazons of the world have innovated to cut costs so drastically that we haven't seen the sharp rise in prices that we normally would have, right? The reason that a lot, you know, computers and all these kinds of things cost the same as they did 10 years ago, well, we've had inflation. Yeah. It's because that technology has been cutting prices so drastically that it's outpaced that inflation, right? So there's a lot of good to, to capitalism in it innovating. But once again, whenever you have all the, all the money in the society running through the hands of the few, there's room for abuse and it totally happens. And there's, there's inequality within race and there's system, systemic uh, inequality across a lot of different things, right? There's different types of discrimination, whether it be religion or your sexual orientation or all the other things that people are dealing with. What we can hope to do, the best that I've discovered, and listen, I don't have all the answers, I wish I did, is to have equality of opportunity, but we can't hold ourselves to equality of outcomes. Because equality of outcome says that if you can buy a pair of tennis shoes, then everybody needs to be able to buy that pair of tennis shoes. If you can buy a nice car, then everybody needs to be able to buy a nice car. And what that really does is it takes everybody to the lowest common denominator. It's, it hasn't worked ever. So capitalism, with all of its flaws, at least allows people to prosper based on their merits a little bit more. And what we have to really focus on fixing is how do we create equality of opportunity, right? How do we give everybody the the same starting line? And let's be honest, it's not possible, right? There's going to be biases no matter what my understanding is when they do these psychological studies. There are inborn psychological things to not trust people who are not like us. They don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They don't sound like us. They don't dress like us. I think it's a tribal thing from like way, way, way back. People who didn't trust people from other tribes survived a little longer than the ones who did. So they procreated something like that. What we have to do is we have to actively look for ways to continually create equality when that inequality inequality crops up. I honestly think this is going to sound crazy and this is my own ideas, but if we if we could do one thing to create equality, it would be give everybody good parents. Yeah. Because your parents, like think about it, if you're if you're born into a wealthy family and your parents are garbage your life's probably going to be bad because you're going to have access to all the bad stuff in the world, right? Because you got the money. Mm -hmm. 
if your parents, if you're not born into a, a wealthy family financially, but you've got great parents who support you and love you and encourage you and help educate you, you got the best chance in the world. You're hungry, you're driven, you're hardworking, and you've got good parents. That's probably the single biggest inequality that we have is people who don't have great parents. Uh, they model that behavior. We're all so programmed by the time we're, you know, very early on in our lives in how we, we do relationships, how we handle money, how we tackle opportunity, how we take risk, so much of that. So I, I think it's a much bigger problem than just our economic setup. But I do think there, there's room for improvement. And I think it's our job as good human beings to root out the inequality of opportunity on the starting line end as much as we possibly can and not focus so much on the inequality of outcomes because no matter where you start everybody, people are gonna end up at a different place in the race, right? Just based on skill sets, situation, some of it's just dumb luck, some of it's health, some of it's who you marry, some of it's just so many things that we can't control. Trying to get there is impossible. I think trying to start everybody at a similar place or as similar a place as we can to give everyone the requisite tools to have a chance at success is, is probably the direction, if I was in charge, that I would take us. I've kind of always said that money doesn't buy happiness, it buys comfort. And it's a lot easier to be happy when you're comfortable because you, like you said, sure. you don't have to worry about not having two nickels to rub together. I know Brandon loves Bezos too. So I'm yeah, sure. I mean, I, there's so many people, I, and I, you said it, and I know why you said it, because you know I'm going to begin on this point. It's <laughs> because I never understood the hate towards him or any billionaire. Like I would understand if he became a billionaire for taking orphans' eyelashes. Like, I would understand the, the impact sure. that would have. But if everyone I've ever known ever has ordered one thing off of Amazon, you can't get mad that it's on Amazon. And then someone who owns the Amazon gets money from it. I never understood this concept. And then, like, there shouldn't be billionaires. Or I've also heard, why do you think, why are you defending billionaires when they wouldn't defend you? I'm not defending a billionaire per se. I'm, de I'm defending the system in America that can allot for someone to become that. I totally agree. And, and for what it's worth, for people who are out there listening and are disenchanted with the system, I truly believe that we, the playing field is now as equal as it's ever been because of technology. You can create a podcast in your basement. You can run a YouTube channel. I mean, if you look at someone like Grand Stefan or, um, or uh, Meet Kevin, I mean, these guys three years ago, making 50 or $100,000 a year. And now they make $10 million a year because of YouTube. Like the opportunity has never been easier. And what did they have? What did they use to do it? A computer that you can buy for 1200 bucks. Mm -hmm. Like almost anybody in America due to financing and everything else, almost anybody in America, unless you're uber, uber poor, can get access to a computer and do something like that. So the, the playing field has never been more leveled. The pandemic, in my opinion, has leveled it even further because it used to be that the Warren Buffetts and the Ray Dalios and the really the guys who have been around for 30, 40 years, they've seen it all. Mm -hmm. Well, nobody in our generation has seen a pandemic like this. Nobody's seen a government, the whole world shut down economically. Nobody's seen the technology booms that we're having. Nobody's seen Bitcoin before, digit digitization of, of currency. Like we're playing in a world where there's so many brand new things. Now, are there people out there who get it? Yes, like I have a total man crush right now on Chamath Papatia. I can barely say his name, but the dude is brilliant. 
but he's, he's pulling all these things together. Guys like that. Okay. You know what? They're playing chess and the rest of us are playing checkers, Mm -hmm. but outside of those guys, like there is massive opportunity in education, in entertainment, in financial services, in health and wellness. I mean, we have so many big problems that need to be solved and the people who solve these problems, the world is, is at your, at your oyster, you know, you can have anything. And yeah, it's one thing to try and develop the next food delivery app or whatever, the next, you know, thing that's like one shade, light shade better, has a little better marketing than the other guy and try and sell your company and make a bunch of millions of dollars. And that's fine. But ultimately, like, I want to see people out there going for the real problems, right? Mm -hmm. The guy who figures out the environment going to be a trillionaire, somebody who can figure out how to, you know, bring the electrical grid to the whole world. Or how whoever can figure out healthcare, right? How to make it affordable? Game over, man. They're gonna just like there's so much money going through healthcare. I was talking to a, a health insurance salesman today, and I could be wrong about this, but I think for a lot of families, healthcare is literally the second most expensive thing that they have in their household behind their mortgage. Right. Like that's how big a deal it is. And if you've ever been sick and not had good healthcare, it's the scariest thing in the world. But if you, I mean, there are literally people who will die because they can't get treatment. If you're a diabetic or something, like it's a big, big problem when people take time to figure something out like that. Yeah. Is it hard? Absolutely. But when you're making those kind of solutions, I mean, the opportunities are everywhere. Just kick a rock down the road and you're going to hit an opportunity. It's there. You just need to decide what's important to you and go for it. And you know what? It might take you five or 10 years. Guess what? Every single person who's successful, it took five or 10 or 20 or 30 years so don't think that's a, a long period of time. If you've been doing something three years and you think you're really good, I sometimes compare it to like the person who comes in and they're like strutting into the, the yoga class. And they're like, I've been doing yoga six months. I'm so good. And then you look at someone who's been doing it 15 years and it's like, you don't even know what you're talking about. This guy over mm-hmm. here is doing it 15 years. He's so many light years ahead of you that you don't even know you're being cocky yet. That's how a lot of us are. We think it's supposed to be in six months, I can master this thing in a year, in two, in three. It takes decades. It really does to, to truly solve legitimate problems and make, make massive value in the world. Uh, you can have some really nice success in a couple of years, and that's great, and that'll fuel it. But don't kid yourself. Like To, to have impactful change, it takes time, and it's worth it. It really is. If, if, you're, if you're looking to be the next Bezos, solve a huge problem like how do I get everybody in the world the stuff that they want really cheap, really fast, and really reliably? That's not a small problem, but he solved it. Do that. Go go knock him off his mountain. I'd love to see people do it because the world only gets better when people do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this idea that the juggernauts will always be the juggernauts is flawed. Like if we look at Amazon and its rise, you know, we used to use eBay when I grew up and we used to use Yahoo when when I was growing up. And now I was going to say Yahoo. Look at that. They both now they both still exist and they're both still fairly successful companies and they're still making good money. I'm not saying that eBay or Yahoo are irrelevant nowadays. You know, they still they still have their place in the in the economy and in the industries. But they got dethroned. They got dethroned by the new guy. And now all of a sudden there's the new guy on top who has the better idea. Like you said, it's the 51 versus 49%. It's, you know, slightly better in this way or that way. And then all of a sudden everyone's using Google instead of Yahoo. And then from there it spirals and takes off. And now everyone uses Google. It's automatically on your phone when you get it. And we're at the point where people are talking about antitrust laws for big tech because they've been so successful. And so it's, I, I think that this idea that 
we're stuck in this in this place where the big players are always going to be the big ones. Um, I think we've already seen that that's not the case. You know, I have a, a lot of respect for all of the the streamers on YouTube, like you were saying, and the people. I don't know if you know um, if you've heard of Mr. Beast, but people mm-hmm. like him who will you know, make their fortune. And then, you know, he, he gives away money, he gives away money, but he makes money doing it because he found his niche. He found where he is able to thrive in a market that didn't really exist in at least to the capacity that he has it. There's always innovative and new and novel ways to make money, not just make money, right, but be successful. And I think that that's a super important line for people to know is that, you know, just because someone's on top now doesn't mean that they're always going to be on top. And that doesn't mean that you can't be on top at some point. The, the good side of that is everybody has a voice. Everybody has a chance. That's also what's made things so noisy and so crazy is sure. even, even the knuckleheads have a voice and have a trip, have a, have a thing. Right. And listen, I don't always agree with the knuckleheads, but you know what? They have the same right as I do to say their, their piece. Hopefully, you know, what should I say, more well thought out arguments will prevail eventually, but everybody gets a voice and sometimes it's hard and it's messy, but I also think that that's where the the diamonds come from too. So, so I don't always love it, but I think it's important. There were two things that I wanted to, to ask you. So the first one is what are your thoughts on, or could you kind of explain the pros and cons of leveraging debt and interest rates and, you know, being able to still start planning financially and start investing and saving, et cetera, even when you have 20, 30, 40,000 in debt for student loans or a mortgage or whatever. And, you know, what you can do in that position to start off other than just paying all your debt off immediately and focusing 100% on that. Um, And then along those same lines, but maybe less specific to that, you know, if someone really does have just a hundred bucks or, or a little, you know, a little more than that a month that they have free in spending money, you know, that isn't going to necessities or rent or mortgage or, you know, medical bills or, or what have you, you know, what for, for someone in one of those two positions, I, I think that's where a lot of this quote unquote hopelessness that we were talking about earlier comes from. You know, you've got this debt looming over uh-huh. you or you've got bills hanging over you. What, it, what would you say to someone in these kinds of situations to, you know, what, how do they start their journey to whether it's financial freedom or even just starting to get involved in this kind of stuff? Yeah. And so I'm going to give some blanket advice. And I want to say this with a caveat that like every situation is different, right? I've Absolutely. worked with some chiropractors where you have a husband and wife and between the two of them, they have $700,000 of student loans. And some of those loans are as high as seven or 8%. Mm -hmm. That is a really scary monster to try and tackle, right? Like, I don't know that there's an easy way for them to do that. Truly, the best thing that they can do is hopefully refinance some of that debt into a cheaper, cheaper situation, or they have to Mm -hmm. out earn it, right? Right. Like they really need to be able to out earn it. And that's not easy on that kind of debt. But for the people that you're talking about here, Zach, that are a little bit more you know, 30, 40, 50, $60,000, when you're not making much money, that seems like a mountain you'll never be able to climb. Mm-hmm. But but I want you to take solace in the fact that plenty of people who don't make very much money have bought 200, dollars $400,000 houses and paid them off over time. So, so mentally, what we have to do here, and this is just my approach, is mentally we have to compartmentalize for a moment and we have to make our, our minimum payments. Now, we need to be a little bit careful here because 
I know there are programs out there where you can make these minimum payments based on your income, but they're not keeping up with the interest, right? So I would suggest that as soon as you possibly can, you get on a payment plan that will pay that loan off in 20 years, let's say, right? A very manageable payment, hopefully, if you're making much money at all. And then you compartmentalize it and you just put that on autopilot. Now, that's not to say that you won't pay that off earlier at some point, but for now, if you have extra dollars, paying them towards your student debt doesn't really do you a ton of good because the money that goes in there is now, it's gone. You have no liquidity. Right. So Corona comes along and now you got to run up some credit cards or you lose your job or your car breaks down and you, you can't go somewhere. And so you do lose that job or whatever. The illiquidity of paying extra toward that when you're, when you're on a pretty tight budget it doesn't make sense. It's not going to speed the curve up that much. And it's going to do more harm than good, I believe, mentally, right? I would rather see you taking that extra money. And at first, of course, build savings. I know this is boring and not sexy, but if you don't have savings, you're so susceptible to so many things. Build up some savings, build some confidence, feel good so that you can go to your boss and ask for the raise if that's necessary, knowing that, hey, I've got two months worth of savings. I can find another job because these people aren't paying me what I'm worth. Right. Or being willing to, if you, you know, you asked about what if they got an extra hundred bucks, I think the best thing you can do, and I know this is going to sound silly, but I believe your twenties are about acquiring skills and relationships. So take the jobs, not necessarily the jobs that are going to pay the best, the jobs that are going to give you the skills and experiences so that you can get the better job in the direction you want to go. If you want to be an advertising executive, I would not advise you to take a job as a bookkeeper. It's not going to do you any good except for get you good at bookkeeping and get you more bookkeeping jobs. It's just bookkeeping doesn't go anywhere, right? You, you can't make that much money unless you want to become a CPA. So being smart about your choices with your jobs, getting jobs where you get the right mentorship, where you get the right uh, skill set that will allow you to get the better job that you want. And it, and it does take time. There's this thing when I was in my 20s, there was this thing called the quarter life crisis. And the quarter life crisis is, I went to school, got some debt, got out. I'm in the trenches. I'm grinding away. I'm three or four years out of school. I'm busting my butt and I'm still wearing the same clothes I wore in college. I'm still driving the same car. I still got the same debt, maybe even more working my fingers to the bone, right? I'm really busting my butt every day. I'm getting, for me, I was getting up at 5.45 every day, commuting for an hour in Los Angeles, working all day, getting home at seven o'clock at night and barely paying my bills for three or four years. And you're like, I'm never going to get there. I'm on a treadmill and it's going at 10 and I, I'm never going to make it. I'm just going to fall and this thing's just going to grind my face off. Right. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah. I feel this. So <laughs> now getting yeah, out of yeah. college, I, I empathize with this, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's, here's the thing to know. If you're in a job, you know, usually two, three, maybe four years is a good amount of time to get a skill set so that you can make that jump. You can get the promotion, you can start your own business, you can move forward. Or like in your case, you know, you guys got to the point where you're like, okay, my job isn't so all consuming that I've got some time to do a side hustle and start a podcast or, or do some other things that can turn into something. Even if I don't have a lot of money, I have some time, I have some knowledge, I have a little bit of a skill set now. Let's go use that. Right. And it seems like that four to five year mark is where people get that first promotion. They get promoted from being in the trenches to the manager or from like the grunt to the semi grunt. So they make a little bit more money. Uh, they make a vertical move. They switch companies and some things start to get a little bit better for them. 
they get their car paid off. Now they're making a little bit, a little better money and they can start to save, or maybe they're, you know, they were putting money into a 401k or an IRA. And so now they've got a little bit of money, a little chunk in there that's starting to earn for them. But you're just, if you look at those algorithmic curves, you know, the ones that start really slow and then over time they get faster and faster and faster. Those first three or four years are the beginning of that curve. And it's really slow and it's a lot of work. So if you're going to do that financially, my belief is do it in a place where you're going to get skills and you're going to meet other people that are going to be in your career path, potentially, because all those people you work with at your job, if they're if you're in the industry, let's say, let's use advertising, right? Because it's a really niche industry. Those people are going to go get other advertising jobs. They're going to get marketing jobs and there are going to be opportunities for you to get promoted or they take you with them or you get them hired at your place or whatever. And you start to build relationships and, and skill sets in the area that you want to be in. So I think if you're in that world and let's say you got an extra hundred bucks a month, listen, there's a ton of really good training you can buy for 50 or hundred bucks a month on a membership site or a, or something where you can get access to specialized training because that's what pays general stuff. If everybody else knows it, it doesn't pay well. If right. everybody else can do it, it doesn't pay well. What does pay well is stuff that people don't know how to, or are not willing to do, right? So get yourself some skills that not everybody has. Digging ditches is really hard work, but everybody can do it, right? Just about everybody. That's why it doesn't pay. Brain surgery is not nearly as hard if you know how to do it, but there's only like seven people who can do it. So it pays a lot, right? And it's yeah. really important. <laughs> so move yourself toward being the brain surgeon. Like if you're in the if you're in the advertising world, buy yourself some books. Like the best thing people can do, like if you don't, if you're just on a total budget. You can't go to trainings. You can't do any of that books, get yourself an audible account, 15 bucks a month, get one to two books a month and listen to them, get books that are going to talk about what you want to do with your life, whether that's relationships or health or your business or marketing or communication skills or whatever it is. And the thing you're most scared of that, you know, you should be doing focus on that. When I came out of school, I was scared to death to sell. And I took the scariest sales job I could find door to door sales for like six months. And then after that, I took a telephone sales job because I realized door to door is too slow. You can't talk to enough people. Telephone sales, the job I took, literally, this was the interview. Hey, what's your name? Nice to meet you. Cool. So we do this thing here. And basically we have a, a, a phone tracker. You have to make 200 cold calls a day or you're fired. How do you feel about that? <laughs> and if you flinched, they just didn't hire you. And I looked at him and I was like, on the phone, can totally do it. I used to just do 100 door knocks a day. So 200 phone calls sounds like a cinch. And they were like, cool, when can you start? That was it. Because it was just, it was, it was, a, it was a grind, right? And, but I knew that was the skill set. And that was the most scary thing for me was selling. I thought selling was this scary, mean, evil, manipulative thing. And I, wanted, I had to figure it out because I knew that I could never start my own business. I could never get where I wanted to go unless I knew how to talk to people and influence them. So that's what I did. I took a job doing that and it scared the hell out of me and got me addicted to coffee because I was so tired because I worked so hard and, <laughs> and all kinds of things with it. But I got a really good skill set. The ability to talk to people, that's what we're doing right here. And to influence people, that's what we're doing right here. It's a really valuable skill set. So I focused on that. And so it, you are on the slow part of the curve. And I think if you're building skills while you're doing that, you can speed up the curve. And that's that's where I would tell people to focus. I know that's a little bit of a broken record on what I said before, but if you don't have the money, you got to have the time or you got to have the skills. That's how it works. One or the other. 
And if you have money, you can buy other people's time and skills. But time and skills are what what makes the money. I feel like this was like the most comprehensive Skillshare uh, advertisement on the planet. Um, but at least on my end, you know, Zach is a bit more, Zach is older and a bit more uh, financially responsible than I. Uh, so I'm more, I'm taking notes as I, I know other people will be taking notes while listening to this. But something I always love asking, at least when we get these opportunities to do an interview, uh, what are, and granted, you already mentioned it, what are some books that you would recommend other people listening to uh, or that you personally have found um that many people should be listening to? What are some, you know, at least two, two books that you would recommend, two or three books? So I read a ton of like financial and business books, right? Mm-hmm. So I think if you want to be in business for yourself, I'll, I'll start with that. This is old and it's classic for a reason. And it's not super profound, but the nuts and bolts of it are really important. I think the E-Myth is a really good book uh, by Michael Gerber. And he breaks down, you know, he tells the story of a girl who loves to make pies with her grandma. So she opens a pie baking business and she comes to find out that being in business as a pie baker is not about baking pies. And he breaks the whole thing down and how business works and how you really create a business that can be successful. Super great book, straightforward, very profound, but highly recommended to anybody who thinks they want to be in business. From a mindset standpoint, another one that's old and a classic, but was super influential on me is uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie. It's kind of a treatise in um, human psychology and what works with human beings and how people think. And it really transformed my thinking. And I literally, this is going to sound cheesy and whatever. I literally at one point like had tears in my eyes that someone would take this knowledge and put it into a book because it's so insightful in how human beings work and everything we do, you know, everything that matters in our life has to do with human beings. So if you get good at, at humaning, and understanding how other people human is a real advantage in life in a good way. You can be a real force for good. And then I think the third book, a more modern book that I think is uh, very powerful for a lot of people is a book that's uh, called Atomic Habits. A lot of people have read it. One of the things we were talking about, I was going to bring up the quote earlier around systems is he says, you don't rise to the level of your willpower. You sink to the level of your systems. Right? Nobody can bring their willpower every day. So you, you have a tendency to fall down to whatever your support system is. So creating really great systems makes a big difference. So uh, those are three I would recommend. And then there's, you know, I, I read a ton of spiritual books too. The classics, my favorite book of all time is the Tao Te Ching by uh, the Stephen Mitchell version of it. It's the idea of new, doing by not doing. In other words, getting yourself into a place where he, he makes the analogy that that at some point you get so good at things and, and you really are so in touch with who you are and, and where you're at in life. It's like the dancer who disappears into the dance or the athlete who disappears into the game. No longer is it the athlete, it's the game playing the game or the, the musician playing the music or the music playing the music through the musician. Um, I just love that concept of doing by not doing and really getting to a place of absolute acceptance and absolute love and joy for every single moment. When you live in that space you're open to everything and everything's possible. And I, I just, I love that. It's not easy to always stay there, but the best version of me is when I'm in that state of mind. That was excellent. I yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. My pleasure guys. <laughs> yeah. There's like a million books. So it's like, ah, I love mm-hmm. Simon Sinek. I love Seth Godin. I love like all <laughs> these people, but, but if I could recommend like three books for people who are on the path, those are a couple that were, have been just foundational for me. Yeah. Well, we appreciate it for sure. <clears throat> 
Um, so typically with, at the end of every interview that we do, we end with two prompts or questions, if you will, that we give the interviewee. Um, the first is an opportunity for you to give any plugs that you wish, um, whether it be for your business or, you know, we've had people plug their own podcast or, um, those without something of their own that, you know, people have plugged some charities and really whatever you, uh, would like to have a promo for in there. Uh, and then after that, just we like to give the interviewee a chance to say what needs saying one last time. If there's been anything that we've missed or anything that you think we touched on, but maybe, you know, went, went a bit too quick on or, you know, didn't cover fully anything you think needs saying that that hasn't been said. Um, so, yeah, I figured I'd turn it over to you and let you give whatever plugs you feel necessary and then say what needs saying. Yeah. So there's not a ton of things I want to necessarily plug. I'm, I'm really working on my YouTube channel. And so that's something that if people like what they've heard here, you know, I've got about 60 videos over there and would love to have you go check them out. And if you like them, give me some thumbs up or, or subscribe, but you can just find that at biglifefinancial.com forward slash YouTube. If you're a business owner and you're looking for financial strategy, or we do a lot of research and development and tax strategies for, for people love to talk with you. Even if you don't think you're my ideal client, you know, I do have clients who make on the high end five to $10 million a year, but I have clients who make $35,000 a year. I, I really invest in people and believe in people. So if you feel like, Hey, I resonate with this guy. I like what he has to say. And you want to talk, just go to biglifefinancial.com. You can click the button up in the corner that says work with us and it will allow you to set an appointment. I've got an hour for anybody, even if you're young or new or don't have a ton of assets, I'm more than happy to spend some time to talk with you see how I can help um, and, and hopefully give you an action plan. Even if it you know doesn't benefit me, that's my version of charity is, is really just trying to help everybody that I get on the phone with or, or get on Zoom with. And as far as things that, that need to be said, I just truly believe that the, the key to happiness is taking responsibility for your own life. If you take responsibility for your own life and you realize that you can impact your outcomes and you fully embrace that and everything that goes wrong in your life you played a part in and everything that goes right in your life, you played a part in and really take accountability of that. And rather than try and get rid of trying to get rid of responsibility, choosing responsibility that you want to take on, I, I believe that's the key to fulfillment is taking on as much responsibility as you can in the areas that you want to take it on with, whether that's with your family or with your business or with a cause or with a charity or with your art or whatever it is, really take that on, pour yourself into it. If you do that and you become excellent at it, I believe the outgrowth of that will be great happiness, great fulfillment, great financial success, and you're building a life that you love. Even if you don't have a ton of money, if you love your life, that's that's the name of the game. It's about quality of life. Don't ever fool yourself into thinking that more money is what's going to, to increase your quality of life. More than likely, unless you're destitute and really struggling, it's going to be how you choose to live your life that's going to, to dictate that. Money is a factor in that. But for most people, it's really about the choices you make. So, so choose wisely. Be clear about what you want in life. Be don't be afraid to say no to things that aren't a fit for you. And, and pursue the things that you think are going to make you happy. And if they don't, you can always change them. So that's what I need to say. That was excellently said. I personally appreciate it. And I took that message uh, to heart. I, what, what about you, Zach? I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think that was great. I think it was a, a great message. And I think a lot of people could learn a lot from this episode. 
I think that we've covered a lot of important talk, uh, a lot of important points about money and finances and all of this. And, you know, frankly, I'm excited that the podcast is going to start focusing a little more on this because it is one of society's taboo topics that really aren't touched on and aren't said. I'm super glad that you were able to join us for it, Derek. We'll definitely have to bring you back at some point for one of our small business episodes. If we Once we get those up and running, we're planning on streaming them live on LinkedIn and some other things. So we're, we definitely appreciate all the, all the insight that you brought to us today. My pleasure. I appreciate you letting me share it. Love doing this kind of stuff, especially with young guys like you who are open-minded and looking to, you know, share ideas in the world because you guys tackle some topics that I'd be a little bit, <laughs> a little bit scared to jump in the arena around. So kudos to you and, and uh, I appreciate you bringing me on.